Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word to the chief musician a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's something theologians call a superscript. Now, there's a tremendous amount of debate among scholars as to the purpose, age, and inspiration of these what appeared to be additions to a great many of the Hebrew hymns. Some believe they've been there since they were written, some believe they were added many years later, and no one can really decide as to whether they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just let the theologians debate that. But I do want us to see that this one, the one that we just read, the superscript that we just read, does actually appear to serve a dual purpose. There's musical direction, and then a little mood-setting background. Now let's read it again. This time we'll recite the whole verse. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. That's verse 1 of Psalm 51. Now, I'm sure most of you already knew that, since Psalm 51 is one of the most well-known passages in all the Bible. Of course, we've taught on it here before as well. Now, in this lesson, we're going to teach on it again, but maybe a little bit more depth. Now, we keep coming back to this masterpiece because, to me, it is a microcosm of our relationship with God. It represents so many of the emotional connections we have with Him. It expresses humility, forgiveness, faith. In this psalm, as we just stated, the superscript actually gives us an idea of how this psalm actually came about. It tells us that there is an actual event associated with the writing of this psalm. Here it is again, to the chief musician, that's that musical direction I spoke of, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's the event that precipitated the writing of this psalm. Now, we must not overlook the connection to the actual event, nor should we take it lightly, because the event, the setting, provides us a window into why there is so much emotion. And when we have the why 
Sometimes it helps us to make the connection to the psalm ourselves, make the connection in our own life. This event that happened in the life of David is the emotional background to this beautiful song of old, and it's important. In fact, knowing the background actually enables us to see directly into the heart of one of the Bible's most important people, and that's rare. That's why, by the way, we're going to spend a couple of minutes going over the events that led up to this psalm being written. I think it's a worthy exercise. It helps us to set up our connection, as I have been saying, to the psalm. Now, the story is found in the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to read verse 1 because it's one of those profound biblical statements wrapped up in a package of subtlety. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now, historians will tell you that warfare has changed quite a bit over the many centuries, and this verse actually contains a couple of snapshots as to how. Now, first of all, in ancient times, to a far greater degree than in modern warfare. The weather had a lot to do with when armies went out into the field to fight. We are told that in David's day and location, the region where David fought his wars, that the battles were usually waged in the autumn and then again in the spring. That means there were long periods of idleness between battles. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab. The time that kings went to battle was either in the autumn or in the spring. The autumn was better because there was lots of heat in the summer, and the winter meant there was a lot of rain. So the wars were fought in the autumn and in the spring. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab. Now the second and more important difference between ancient warfare and modern warfare is actually hinted at here. In those days, the king went forth to battle. Listen, there hasn't been a king on a battlefield since Tsar Nicholas II at the beginning of the 20th century. And even then, he never went into actual battle. He just led the troops from the front. In the ancient world, kings went forth to battle, and Samuel purposely mentions that. Now, it's he mentions it because it's an important part of the story. Verse 11.1 1 wasn't 
a weather report. And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now Samuel, the prophet who wrote this book, was pointedly saying that when the time for war arrived, kings rode out with their troops. That's what they did. Now let's read the entirety of verse 1 and 2 of chapter 11 together because they are there to point out, to lay out the setting for sin. Listen to this. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. And David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself and a woman was very beautiful to look upon. David had lost his way. He had been God's warrior much of his adult life. But by this time, he preferred to delegate. He sent Joab. He sent Joab's servants. And he tarried at Jerusalem. David forgot what he was there for. A very dangerous thing to do. God called David to lead his people, and he decided to delegate. Now, nothing wrong with delegation if it's necessary, but verse 2 tells us that David arose from his couch and walked out to the roof of his palace. He was sleeping. He didn't hang back from battle because of some other pressing state matter. He wasn't entertaining visiting dignitaries or attending to some important public building project. He was lounging. He was napping. David had gotten comfortable in the position he now found himself. Before Mel Brooks said it, David did. It's good to be the king. The problem that was just now manifesting itself was that David forgot why God placed him on that throne. God didn't give David victory after victory so he could lean back and bask in his own glory. God made David a mighty king, not for David's sake, but for God's. At one point, David knew that. 
At some time in his past, David knew that he existed, where he existed, and why he existed for God's purposes. If only we could remember that God created us and placed us where he placed us for him. If we could only convince ourselves of that or constantly remind ourselves of that, we wouldn't be so worried about our identity, about our destiny, about how things affect us, of how we look to the world. We were created for God, and that's that. Let's keep moving. In a very powerful way, the first two verses of 2 Samuel tell us that David had drifted from the purposes of God. Now, his sin with Bathsheba, which we'll talk about in a moment, David's sin with Bathsheba isn't proof of David's distance from God. It's the result of it. When David stopped focusing on his place in God's kingdom, sin entered in. When we're focused on the things of God, when we're focused on fulfilling God's will in our life, then we are much less vulnerable to sin. If David had stayed close to God, he would have been on that battlefield winning victories for God as he was supposed to do. But instead, he was napping on his rooftop, letting trouble find him. Now, I didn't actually mean to go into so much depth on this first part, but I think too few people look at why David failed. Knowing how to avoid sin is far better than asking for forgiveness once it's too late. Making sure that we avoid the sinful life is far easier than sorrowing over our horrible sin failures, as Psalm 51 points out. If David had remained faithful to God's purpose for his life, Psalm 51 would have never come about. Now, you can tell me whether or not you think that's good or not, but I will tell you this. The sin, and the Bible makes this certain, the sin that David committed with Bathsheba had a devastating effect on God's kingdom, so much so that God had to punish David, and he punished him severely, and some people, myself not included, but some people believe that David spent his entire life under the whip of God's judgment. There's no question. What David did 
was greatly destructive toward God's purposes. There's no question about that. If David had stayed close to God, it would have never happened. I believe that God would rather Psalm 51 not be there than the destruction that David's sin did to his plans. Maybe that's a little irreverent, but that's how I feel. Let's keep moving. So David wakes up from his midday nap. He leisurely strolls out onto the roof, and across the way he sees a beautiful woman bathing. You know the story. He sees Bathsheba bathing. Now to some, that's bad enough. Some churches will kick you out right there just for peeping. But it gets worse. The moment David saw this woman, he was smitten. Starts to ask around. Eventually, he discovers who she is. As you know, and as I've said, her name is Bathsheba. But it's this next fact, or more accurately, his disregard of this next fact that started David down a very, very dark path. David was told that Bathsheba was a married woman. And not only was she married, but she was married to someone David knew very well. Bathsheba's husband was Uriah the Hittite, a soldier in David's army. But listen, he was no ordinary soldier. He was one of a group of 37 of the king's best warriors known in the Bible as David's mighty men. Uriah was a member of the band of brave soldiers that we are told elsewhere in the Bible stayed and supported David early on in his great struggles, long before he ascended into that great palace. They were the ones that were with him, comforting him, fellowship with him in the cave at Adullam. Uriah was a part of that group. Now, that's a long story in itself, but to suffice it to say that Uriah belonged to a very elite and very dedicated fighting force. This man was in the personal service of the king. Now, I'm not trying to add drama. I'm trying to paint a completely accurate picture for you. This Uriah was not only a great soldier, but he was a loyal friend. Not to be certain, just the simple, plain fact that Bathsheba was married should have stopped David right there. But then add in the fact that her husband Uriah was who he was, the matter should have ended immediately, if, if for no other reason than out of respect and gratitude. Well, none of this appears to have made much of a difference to David. David sends messengers to Bathsheba, and they bring her to him. And we don't have to try to imagine what happened. 
the King James tells us, in its ever so proper manner. Verse 4 reads that she came in unto him and he lay with her. Now that's Bible code for, well, you know what? Well, as is often the case when one lies with a woman, a child is conceived. Now, even for a king, having a child with another man's wife can be, well, quite a problem. And David could not risk his indiscretion being exposed. So in order to try and cover up his evil deed, David comes up with what can only be described as an evil plan. The king decides to recall Uriah from the battlefield under the guise that he's going to ask for a report on how the war is progressing. He comes up with this plan. He's going to call Uriah in and say, how are things going with the war? That's going to be his plan to get the man home. Now, in reality, David's hoping that Uriah, after having been on the battlefield low these many days, would want to sort of make a beeline first for the comfort of the warm embrace of his beautiful wife, Bathsheba. That way, no one would have reason to question who the father of the soon-to-follow baby was. Any nine-based math would lead roughly to the month that Uriah was called home for a few days. Easy. David would never be discovered. In fact, just to make sure things go well, David decides not to leave anything to chance and decides to order Uriah to go directly home. He says, verse 8, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. Yeah, Uriah, go. Yeah, get your feet washed. You'll feel better. Go home. Wash your feet. I'm not telling you to do anything else, but, you know, go home. Kick the boots off. Get your wife to clean your feet. Now, from here, the story gets even more gut-wrenching. After being told to go home first, Uriah does not go home to be with his wife. Excuse me, to wash his feet. When Uriah arrives in Jerusalem, directly from the battlefield, he does not go home, but instead he spends the night, verse 9, at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. Uriah, the man whose wife David had stolen, was a good, noble, honor-bound man. He was loyal to his king. He was loyal to his calling, which must have just eaten David alive. Uriah was a man who was focused on his purpose in life, not in himself. Listen to what happens next. Verse 10. 
And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why didst thou not go down unto thy house? The funny thing about sin is that when we sin, we can't understand why other people don't sin right along with us. We think there's something wrong with you if you're not taken care of, number one. What's wrong with you? You're weird. Why didst thou not go down unto thine house, Uriah? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go unto mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest, and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. This is, this is tough. I mean, this is even tough just to hear. Put yourself in the middle of this. Here we have David, who has done an awful thing to this honorable man, a mighty man, a loyal friend, and now he can't even cover up his tracks. Now, I know I keep telling you this, but it continues to get worse. David then tells Uriah, well, stay one more day, and then you can leave the next morning. David has one more trick up his sleeve. Are you getting this? Are you listening to this? This is David. This is the great Bible hero. This was God's anointed David the king. This is why I say the sin of David was devastating to the kingdom. God had chosen this man. God had called him a man after his own heart. For centuries, people have been able to use the failure of David to mock God. God can't even get it right with David. Look what he's done. That's why God was so upset. Why God came down so hard on David. Because this sin was detrimental to God. Back to the story. David told Uriah to stay one more night. And that night, David throws a big party for Uriah. He gives Uriah a big feast and actually gets him drunk. David purposely gets Uriah drunk. Now, why, you say? Why does David get Uriah purposely drunk? Well, as some may be able to attest to, a bit of the bubbly makes one more apt to, well, you know, makes you a little more avarice. That's at least David's plan. He wants to pour a little sauce in Uriah. Get him thinking about his wife. Drop his inhibitions a bit. But it doesn't work. 
even though the man was under the influence, he continues to do what every good soldier should and once again stays at his post. This is not going well for the king. And we are seeing the spectrum of men. At one end is the good, loyal Uriah. At the other end is the evil, scheming, self-centered King David. I think this story is here purposely to point something out to us. Mankind can be awful. But that doesn't mean God gives up on you. Let's keep going. At this point, David becomes desperate. He appears to be out of options. Uriah is scheduled to return to the war, and it looks like he's going to do so without getting anywhere near his wife. That's bad for David. Well, I'm sure you guessed it by now. It gets worse. David's desperation leads him down an even darker path. He sinned, and in his mind, he must not be exposed no matter what. So David decides to write a letter to the commander of his army with instructions that will seal Uriah's fate. And to make it worse, if that's at all possible, He even makes Uriah deliver what can only be described as his own death sentence to Joab the commander. And in that letter, David tells Joab to put Uriah at the very front of the battle. The Bible says, put him in the front of the hottest battle. And that's not even the worst part yet. He wants Uriah exposed at the front to the war's hottest battle. And then David says, when that battle gets heated up even more, have everyone turn around and run away from the battle and from Uriah so that he will then be fully exposed and sure to be killed. And that's what happens. Now, this is an awful story. David's distance from God has taken its darkest turn yet, but in his mind, he's protected. Well, with this very dastardly deed done, David immediately takes Bathsheba for his wife. Didn't have any time to waste because nine months later, a child is born. And as the years go by, others are added. Including, by the way, David's successor, King Solomon. David's actions were cold. They were calculated. Purposeful and deeply sinful. David had lost completely his moral center. Now again, as I do every time, I warn you not to judge too harshly without doing a little introspection. I mean, haven't we all in one way or another 
sin boldly in the face of God? David's been very favored by God. God's blessed him with a mighty kingdom, with great victories, with great riches, and most of all, God blessed David with his direct counsel. What a precious gift. God was personally directing David's life through the prophet Nathan, and yet David seemed to behave as if he were not responsible to God. You're no less blessed than David. In fact, you're more blessed. Sure, David had the prophet Nathan, but you have the Holy Spirit. Sure, David had riches and kingdoms and glory. But through Jesus, we're joint heirs of everything. David's rewards in heaven are no greater than yours. He's a joint heir just like you. And haven't we disregarded God's calling on our life? At least once, but I'm sure if you're like me, many, many times. That's why these things are important. That's why it's important to study the things of God. Maybe you didn't murder someone. Maybe you didn't take someone's wife. But I've told you many times before, it doesn't matter the severity of your sin. It's who you are that makes the difference. David was God's anointed. It's not the fact that he was a murderer that made this so bad. It was that he was a sinner that made this so bad. The degree of sin is not important to God. It's who is sinning that is. That's why there, in the Levitical offerings, there are more costly offerings for priests and kings than for the common folk. It's who sins that's important. It's how your sin affects the kingdom that's important. But nonetheless, all sin affects God. And we all do it. As a child of God, the bar is raised for you. The world is already looking to point their finger at you and say, ah, oh, look at that. That's a Christian. Look what he's doing over there. That Christianity is a fraud. It's a joke. Look what he does. It's important. You're a son of God. What you do is important. In yourself, you're nothing. In David, he was nothing. He proved it. When he moved away from God, he became a sinner, a tremendous sinner. Same with you. You move away from your responsibilities to God, you're going to sin, and your sin is going to have an impact on the kingdom. Don't judge David too harshly. Sometimes. It takes a jolt from God to straighten us out. Sometimes it's through our conscience, and sometimes, oftentimes, it comes through a man of God. 
The Bible tells us that in this instance, God sends Nathan to confront David. Now, listen to me. The simple fact that God did not strike David down tells you that God is merciful, that God wants to correct us. He doesn't want to remove us. He wants to correct us. When we sin, even when the sin has great impact, destructive impact on the kingdom, he wants to correct us because he loves us. He didn't strike David dead. And David's sin perhaps was the most impactful sin in all of the Bible. All recorded, of all the sins recorded in the Bible, this one probably had the greatest impact on the kingdom. And yet, God did not take David out. He wanted to correct David. God sent Nathan unto David to straighten him out. God wanted David to repent. He still had things that David needed to do in this life. So he needed to straighten David out. He needed to remind David of who David was, and he needed to remind him who God was and the connection between the two. Listen, God couldn't force David to repent. God can't, can't force you to repent. Repentance doesn't work that way. We must repent of our failures from our own heart. Now that's Nathan's challenge. He had to get David to see that he failed God. It's not going to be easy. Not only that, it's going to be pretty risky. Even prophets have to be careful when challenging kings. So, Nathan has to get creative, literally. Let's read chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, starting at verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb which he had brought and nourished up. And it came up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. David was mad. This rich man, he has everything and he comes and takes the poor man's meager sustenance. He takes, the rich man takes from the poor man what little he had. And David's angry. I'll take care of this guy. You just tell me who he is. Not only is he going to restore, but that man's going to die. 
Verse 7. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives unto thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. God is calling David out. God is angry at David. Now, this is scary. I wouldn't want God calling out my deepest, darkest secrets. Now, of course, we're in the age of grace, but just imagine God getting directly involved in your most heinous sins. Thank God for his mercy and the blood of Jesus. Now, I believe even here God is showing his mercy. You know, after all that God did for David, and they're all listed there in chapter 12, and David to have completely disregarded his blessed state, as I said before, God could have just snuffed him out. God's confronting David, I believe, to see what David does about it. Can David be redeemed? Is David willing to repent? Because repentance must come before redemption. You must confess your sins to be saved. When the ugliness of your sin is put in your face by God, what are you going to do about it? That's what's happening here. God is confronting David with his sin. And you know what? To David's eternal credit and our eternal benefit, Psalm 51 is born. Now let's, let's remember we started out talking about Psalm 51. That's what our subject is today. So let's go ahead and read the whole thing. The whole thing of Psalm 51 is not very long. Now that we have the story behind this psalm. Verse 1. Have mercy upon me. O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Think about the sin of David as we're going through this. And think about your own sin, the things that you've done, the things that you have not brought before the Lord. But I'm saved, John. He's taken my sins. I know that he has. This is the psalm of a man who knows who can blot out the transgressions. The psalm David wrote is the expression of his love and faith in that God will take care of him even in his sinful state. Yes, you've been saved. That doesn't mean you go around blatantly disregarding who God is. 
Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Now, one of the most fascinating things about poetry, and especially the Psalms, is that not only are the words important, but also often, very often, the structure of the poem, song, or psalm helps to tell the story. Now, we see that the first 12 verses of Psalm 51 are David's confessions. He's acknowledging his sin and he's pleading. He's begging for pardon. He's begging for forgiveness. He's begging for renewal. That's the first 12 verses of the psalm. And then the last seven are his expression of gratitude for forgiveness already claimed. Now, this is one of the most important lessons of this psalm to us sinners. Here we learn that we have to humble ourselves in recognition of our transgressions, our trespasses, our sins. But listen to me, equally important, and this is lost in, I think, traditional churches today, equally important is our acceptance in faith of God's forgiveness. That's vital to our understanding of and relationship with God. God paid a very hefty price for the means to forgive. God wants to forgive you so that not only he can move on, but you can. 
Listen, God has the right to treat every sinner as he pleases, but he will always be true to his word, even to his own detriment. God said he will forgive and forgive he will. And listen to me, forgiveness, in my opinion, is the most precious gift you'll ever receive. You want to know why? Because every other gift that comes from God must pass through your forgiveness. God's forgiveness is the base from which all other blessings flow. You see, sin is the locked door that stands between us and God's blessing. And forgiveness, God's forgiveness is the key that opens up that locked door. God can't even allow you to be in his presence to receive blessing had it not been for his forgiveness. Remember, I've told you this many times, God's just not some prude up there. He needs you to be perfect. And yes, I did say perfect. You cannot have a spot nor wrinkle. You must be clean. You must be perfect. Because God cannot be in the presence of sinful blemish. Even the smallest one, he cannot be in the presence of. It's that simple. Just like you can't live in a water environment, God cannot live in a sin environment. Listen, God wants to dwell with you. He's always wanted to dwell with you. Why do you think he created you? He wants you to be in his presence eternally. His word is full of the most beautiful expressions of his desire to be near the people he created. But the expulsion from the garden due to sin has created an environment where God will not tread. So because we, in our unsaved, sinful state, are not allowed in God's presence, we cannot receive any of his blessings as long as we remain in that unsaved, unforgiven, sinful state. You follow? The forgiveness of our sins reopens our state and allows God to interact with us and therefore we can receive the blessings of his presence. Remember our teaching on the tabernacle and its relationship to Christ? The death of Christ purchased the forgiveness of our sins and allowed us direct access to God, symbolized by the tearing of that big curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. But what's too often lost in our relationship with God is our faith that he will apply this well-bought, expensive forgiveness for our sins. We somehow want to dwell on our sin rather than give it up completely and leave it on the cross where it was destroyed 2,000 years ago. That's our problem. Now, of all the sins that we commit, I have to say this may be the noblest of them. It's this 
misguided realization of our humility before God. Yes, we're supposed to be humble before God, but we take it too far. It's our wide open recognition of how we've hurt God with our sins. We seem to have a hard time believing that such a wonderful God can forgive wretches such as we are, but we have to. Otherwise, we can't move on. Otherwise, we can't be useful to God if we keep dwelling on our own sin. God makes it clear that you must believe in His forgiveness so that you can move on. Yes, it's a relatively good intention to be so humble before God that you can't even see how He can forgive you, but it's still a sin. It still causes a rift between us and God, and Psalm 51 reminds us of this. Once we've confessed our sin and turned it over to Him, once we've laid our transgressions on the altar, we must walk away knowing that our sins are burned up forever. We can't keep going back trying to smear the soot of our sin back on ourselves. We can't be rummaging through the ashes trying to find that sin again so that we can reapply it. That's an insult to what Christ went through. He died so that your sin can no longer impact you in the form of separation from God. The fit man took that scapegoat out into the wilderness never to be brought back again. To not live your life in full recognition, which includes thankfulness and faith, is the ultimate insult to what he went through for you. You must accept his forgiveness. You must live your life with thanksgiving for the forgiveness that you've received and faith so it applies. Missing one of those is not living properly. No, we don't go around with presumptuous because we're forgiven, nor do we go around whipping ourselves because we're lowly sinners. If we, in faith and humility, look upon what Christ did for us, we will remain in a progressing relationship with our Heavenly Father. We will be useful to Him in His calling on our lives. Once that sin is confessed and forgiven, leave it. Sin no more, as Jesus told those that he healed. Sin no more. That's what he said to the woman caught in adultery. He forgave her and then said, sin no more. Yes, that's what we're to do. But you don't go back and remember those sins. They're gone. We know that Part of the purpose of this psalm is to show us what we've been talking about. That we are to seek God's forgiveness through sincere, humble confession and to live with complete assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Now, in the time remaining, let's take a closer look at this beautiful psalm and reflect on our own approach to applying and believing in God's mercy and forgiveness. Verse 1 again. 
Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David is laying out his immense need for God's mercy. He knows he's committed a terrible sin, and he fully realizes he needs to do something about it. Or, more accurately, something has to be done about it. He's not going to be able to do much about it, other than take it to God. But something must be done. These two first Verses show us a man who's taking the responsibility for his deeds. That's what we are to do. And then he's begging God for mercy. That too. We acknowledge our sin and ask for forgiveness. David is pleading with God to blot out the whole story, the terrible record of his despicable deeds. Now, the Hebrew word translated transgression here refers to a sin of rebellion or revolt. David wants God to erase, to blot out, to remove his rebellion. Now, rebellion is when you seek what's best for you rather than what's best for all. That's what rebellion is. David sought what was best for him, and he sinned. He wanted God to blot out that rebellion, that transgression. He wanted God to wash him thoroughly. Now, the original word gives a sense of multiple washings. When it says thoroughly, it's more like multiple washings. David needed multiple washings. When I was a kid, my mother got a dishwasher. Now, to us at that time, it was a technological marvel. We thought it came straight from NASA. We stood in awe of it. But the first time we went to use it, Mom said, Wait, rinse those dishes before they go into that dishwasher. What? Why? Because the only way to make sure all the stains are gone, is to wash them multiple times. Now, to this day, to my own family's displeasure, I thoroughly wash my dishes before I put them in the dishwasher. I don't want to take any chances that any of the stains will remain, and neither did David. Wash me as many times as it takes, Lord. At the end of verse 2, you see there that he asks for cleansing. Now, you would think washing and cleansing are the same thing, but here, David, here in this psalm, they're making reference to the Levitical method of decontamination. When you see the cleansing, it's really referring to a decontamination from a disease. Listen, this is one remorseful guy. He knows that he needs a full and complete sterilization, if you will. He's not just defiled by sin in his mind. He's corrupted by it. Listen, we must realize that our sins cause real, lasting damage. 
Verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now with a, I guess, a little bit of analysis, scholars are able to determine from the Bible that at the time of Nathan's confrontation with the king, as spelled out in 2 Samuel, about a year had passed since Uriah's murder. So there was about a year between 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. There's scholars say it's been about a year. Some have suggested that over that year's time, some have suggested that it wasn't until Nathan confronted David that he even acknowledged that he had displeased God. Some believe that David sort of put it away and never thought about it. Not true. The Bible makes it clear that David had not been oblivious to what he had done. In fact, David was haunted by his failures. He says that his sins were ever before him. His sin was constantly on his mind. Not only does verse 3 tell us that, but we can also see in his earlier Psalms where he, he appears to be grappling with the internal struggles of his guilt. Psalm 32, for example. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roarings all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. Selah. Now Psalm 51 may be David's first public and first full declaration of what he had done, but that doesn't mean he wasn't already suffering because of it. His conscience has been eating him up inside. That's the sign, in my opinion, of a true child of God. The sin matters. The Holy Spirit is telling you, you've got to get right. You've got to get right. You've got to get right with God. Back to Psalm 51, verse 4. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. You know, what seemed to haunt David the most was this realization that he let the Lord down. David knew that he owed everything to God. He declared that many times. He knew that without God, he would have been nothing. And of course, that same truth applies to you and I. Now, as we move along in this psalm, we can see that the second part of verse 4 really sort of belongs to verse 5. By the way, you know that the Bible wasn't originally written in chapter and verse. It wasn't until medieval times that these divisions appear in God's Word. Let's read verses 4 and 5 a little bit differently. Maybe it makes a little bit more sense. So we're going to read the last part of verse 4, then append it to verse 5. Listen to this. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, David is saying, listen, God, before you judge me too harshly, just remember 
that I'm a sinner from birth. Before you come to come down too hard upon me, remember I was shapen in iniquity. I'm a son of Adam. I have this condition of sin on me, so I'm listen, I'm not trying to make an excuse. All I'm asking you is to consider this. David's frightened. He's terrified. You should be frightened when you sin. Yes, you should be frightened until you bring it to God. In verse 4 and 5, David is asking God to take into account his nature as a sinner by birth before he makes the final judgment. David is afraid. On to verse 6, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. David's saying that you, God, look for deep-down sincerity when you deal with your children, merely pretending on the outside to be sorrowful for sin by some petty show of wailing or begging forgiveness is not enough. God, according to David, expects us to feel our remorse down deep. David is declaring that he's discovered that he has to get right with God all the way down to his inward and hidden parts. Too often we're satisfied with looking penitent or talking about humbling ourselves before the Lord. But David is learning that's not enough. God expects sincerity. Listen to how Jesus puts it. Matthew 15, 8. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is from, far from me. You can't fool God. He knows you through and through. Being insincere only makes things worse. Continuing now in Psalm 51, we'll pick it up at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now here again, David is making a reference to something that the sinners of Israel will take very seriously. He's referring to hyssop. And when he's referring to hyssop, his intention is to illustrate his view of his wretched condition before God because it was hyssop that the priests used in their ceremonial cleansing of the leper. Now, leprosy in the Bible serves to symbolize the corrupting nature of sin. David is saying, purge me with hyssop. Treat me like a leper, God. I am corrupted by sin. David wants those that are singing this psalm to think of the disease of his soul. David is asking for a sprinkling because that's what the hyssop does. It sprinkles the cleansing agent. It sprinkles or splatters. David is asking for a sp sprinkling, a splatter of cleansing. And here he's sort of prophetically evoking how the sprinkling of Jesus' blood cleanses us all. This is a prophetic psalm, as many others are. He's using the reference to hyssop 
to sort of prophetically declare that when Christ's blood is sprinkled on us, much like the, the priest would sprinkle the cleansing agent on the leper, then we're healed, we're cured. The corruption will be removed. David is trying to get us to see that sin is a corrupting event. It makes us rot away, just like leprosy causes the body to rot away. David is declaring in faith that when God comes to purge him, he will be clean. This is where we see David turning the corner. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's starting to declare that when God does his work, it's going to take. He will be cleaned. Verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. This is a man who is recognizing that sin has a way of dulling the senses. Persistent sin can make us numb and incoherent. It's as if sin closes our ears to truth. When we're lost in sin, we often turn a deaf ear to our own conscience. And of course, the conscience of a Christian is the Holy Spirit. That's what David is talking about. There was a time in his life, there was a time in the life of David before this terrible sin, when he would sing and he would play the harp to the glory of God and it would give him such joy and gladness. Well, his sin took that away. He misses it. His sin took away the joy. And now his life was as agonizing as having broken bones. Verse 9, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. It's a terrible thing to be caught in sin. God sees it anyways, but when we come to that realization, it's awful. We become ashamed. We're ashamed by our sin. David is saying, hide your face from me. Don't look at me. I'm horrible. David is expressing for himself as well as for, as for us how awful it is to think that God's been looking down and seeing our sinful nature. But still, David turns to God to fix his condition, to blot out his iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now that word create there, the English word create, is actually translating the Hebrew word bahra. It's the same word. Bahra is the same word that's used in Genesis 1.1 where we read that God created the heavens and the earth. Now this is important. Bahra is an important word here. It's an incredible word because it actually means, listen to this, bahra means to create out of nothing. You may think you're quite clever because you can make a chair or a cabinet or a shoe or a sand castle. But in reality, you would have to use a different word because you created those things from other things. 
In fact, you're really not creating. You're transforming. And that isn't what bara is. Bara is to make something without pre-existing materials. The use of bara here, the use of the word that means to create out of nothing, is as much beautiful as it is gut-wrenching. Because David is saying, create, make out of nothing, out of, out of no pre-existing material, my heart. In other words, God, please don't use anything that already exists in me. Please do not transform any of my completely corrupted heart. Make it completely new. He feels like his heart has deceived him. It is dark all the way through. He feels his sin has left him a complete loss. He doesn't want anything of his old self, of his old previously existent materials to be retained or reused or repurposed. To him, it's all rotten. There's nothing redeemable about it. He knows that his only hope to keep a right relationship with God and with his purpose for his life, his only hope to continue to walk in the paths of righteousness is to be born anew. Not just reassembled, but a brand new creation. Remember I said Psalm 51 is prophetic. John 3, 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not remade, born again. David is asking God for a whole new existence, a whole new essence. He prophetically knows what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. How can you not get these things? How can you think the Bible is nothing but an old, dusty book? God's word is so amazing. His truths are found from start to finish. I call the Bible the great big cross-reference manual. Back to Psalm 51, verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Living a life of sin, and I'm not just talking about the thou shalt shells and thou shalt nots. A sinful life is any life apart from God. You could be the nicest, sweetest, most well-behaved person on the planet, but if you're living your life apart from God, you're a sinner. This psalm just happens to be using David's horrific sins as a backdrop, but don't let that fool you. You don't have to get to that level of horrific sin. I've already said that. Sin is sin. The sinful life, apart from God, has a consequence. Any life apart from God has a consequence, and that's total and complete and eternal separation from God. Now, to some of you, that may not seem so bad. But the sinful life has a price to pay. 
You may think it's great to live apart from God. You may think, great, I don't have to go to church on Sunday. God will not let sin go by unpaid for. Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That was what happens to those that have turned their life away from God. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The only way to avoid being turned away is to throw yourself on God's mercy and faith. David knows this is the only way to get things right here. So he here he's desperate. He please, God, please don't cast me away. You've got to get this. This psalm isn't just something to read or sing and then forget about. It's the formula for how God wants us to deal with our own sinful nature. Admit your guilt, turn to him for for forgiveness, and then live the rest of your life in faith and gratitude that he's cleansed you and made you new. Do you see any other way to accomplish Redemption in these words? No. We are to recognize our sinfulness, throw ourselves on his mercy, and believe he's forgiven us. Now remember, faith is an action word. Through your actions, you must show that you are forgiven and accepted. That means living your life in daily recognition that you are once again in a right relationship with the Almighty. Constantly tapping into that relationship will honestly change you from the inside out. What's next? Verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Once you're saved, it's hard to explain, but your life begins to have a joy to it that's unspeakable. Now, I'm not saying we're just going to walk around grinning and smiling all day, floating around on our personal cloud of happiness. That's not the joy I'm speaking of. The joy of salvation is faith. Faith in God to take care of us, to guide us, to protect us, to be our great shepherd. What is it that shepherds do? They lead, they feed, and they protect. That's the joy of salvation. Knowing that you are in the court of the Almighty with all the rights, privileges, and protections of a member of a royal family. Yes, you're going to struggle and battle and fight melancholy and even sin. But as we grow closer to him, we become more and more aware of our need to unload those battles, those struggles, those disappointments onto the mighty back of Jesus. And uphold me with thy free spirit. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. The only way to preserve that joy, the joy of salvation, is to stay close to the Lord's Holy Spirit. He will sustain your salvation and actually make you grow in that salvation. 
Like every other relationship in our lives, we hope that our newly found, or in some cases, refound relationship with God will grow and grow from that day onward. And the only way that's going to happen is if we are upheld by his spirit. David did not want to return to his old ways, and he knew that he had to beg God to help him keep going ever forward and never backward. Verse 13, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted unto thee. David is starting to turn the faith corner. Now he's already looking forward in faith to this redeemed life that he's just sure God's going to give him now that he's confessed. David is starting to tell God that he knows he will be a changed man because he's asked God to do that. And God has promised he will change David if he comes to him in humility and confession. David is declaring that he will become what all of God's redeemed are called to be once they've accepted their salvation. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Once we are changed by God, people are going to notice. You're going to be different. Let God's light shine. David knows that once the world sees the change that God's made in him, they too will be converted. And he's right. People are going to see the different person that you are, the lovely person that you are, the person who is walking with the Holy Spirit, and they're going to want it too. David knows that, and he's telling us. Sounds like he's telling God, but he's also telling us. You see, David's a character that most of us can relate to. He's all human. He makes awful mistakes, and he's constantly failing. That makes him believable. That makes him relatable. Because we say, now, if David can not only become king, but become a man after God's own heart, then why can't I? I mean, he's full of faults and so am I. He's full of sins and so am I. God didn't turn his back on David even after all these terrible things he's done. Maybe I can come to the throne boldly and ask for God's mercy. David's right. He has been teaching transgressors God's ways for thousands of years. David has upheld his promise. Verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Only you, God, are so righteous that you can make someone like me sin-free. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. David is expressing the progress in his salvation. He's feeling it. The joy of his deliverance is bubbling up inside and he's ready to shout out praise and thanksgiving for God's mighty work in him. He's been silent about his sin and sinfulness for so long and now that his salvation is at hand, he wants to sing and show forth praise to his Redeemer. Now we may not feel this way every day, but there's just something that happens inside us when we meditate on God's loving kindness. Our salvation, it brings a song to our hearts, and we want to sing praises to his name, and it brings tears to our eyes. I don't feel bad if, if you don't feel comfortable doing all of that in a crowded mall or a street corner or public park or even in church. I think it's okay to feel it in your heart and then shout it out when you're ready. You may be alone in your car. You may be walking alone in the street and you're just going to raise your hands and say, praise the Lord. It's okay. Do what feels right. But just make sure you do it. Praising God is worthy. He loves it. And it makes us feel good too. Verse 16, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. David is saying that mere outward rituals will not ultimately please God. David seemed to know then what we know now. And that's that the Levitical sacrifices, in other words, the rituals found in Leviticus, those found in the law, he's saying that they're types and shadows of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He's not saying it in so many words, but he's saying the sacrifices of God are different. They're more full than what we read in the law. It's our acceptance of the sacrifice of Christ that truly pleases God, seeing beyond what's written in the law into the perfect picture of Christ. What God really wants is change that's felt deep down. The broken heart of the sinner all but guarantees a new person. When your spirit has been crushed, that's what the Hebrew word actually means. When it says broken heart, it actually means crushed, something that's crushed under, under the weight of guilt. It's only when we feel crushed under our own sinfulness, that's when our guilt can actually do something for us. Then God can do something with us when we feel it that deep down. Verse 16 and 17 proclaim the gospel truth that God is less interested in what you've done and more interested in what you will do. He wants to know what you're going to do with the heart that's crushed under the weight of the guilt. Are you going to turn it over to him as a sacrifice? Are you going to run to him to relieve your deep sense of failure? He doesn't care that you've failed. He wants to know what you're going to do about it. 
The only thing that you can do to help yourself, truly help yourself, is to offer your broken spirit to him as a sacrifice. That's what pleases him. That's what the gospel is. Verses 18 and 19. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Now these last two verses sound a little bit different, don't you think? They seem to kind of contrast with the rest of the psalm. And some of the commentators have suggested because they are so different that perhaps they were added at a later date. Some say around the Babylonian captivity. But I disagree. David is a master poet. And as we've already said, the structure, the tone of the psalm is important. This psalm tells a story of heartbreaking sin, heartfelt remorse, and heart-strengthening faith. In these last two verses, David is expressing that heart-strengthening faith. He's laid his guilt on the Lord. He's completely accepted God's full forgiveness. So much so, he has so much faith in God's forgiveness that now his mind is immediately switched to God's people. In fact, these last two verses are once again clear examples of the prophetic nature of this psalm. We've already seen a couple of examples of it. This is perhaps the clearest. David is leaping far ahead, even ahead of our own time, to the millennial age and the millennial city. The walls of Jerusalem he speaks of here are probably merely a picture of the security that God will surround his capital in those yet future days. David also sees that that time will be for the renewal of the meaningful ceremonies of sacrifices, which we are told will be conducted to honor and memorialize the one who fulfilled all those previous types and shadows, just like the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, which was once Passover, in a way that honors he that fulfilled the Passover. Well, God will commend those other sacrifices. He will command those sacrifices to remind the world of the redemptive work of his son. And David sees that. David is showing he's a prophet. So what was the result of all this confession and prayer for forgiveness and faith in his salvation? Well, for the answer to that, we have to jump back to that historical record found in 2 Samuel, verse 13, chapter 12. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. 
Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.